Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, James the Thorpe! With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the kings and queens of Scots from Kenneth McAlpin to James the Sixth. James the Fourth! Well, which is not far away from yeah. James the Sixth, is it? We yeah. are very close. Numerically, we're close. Is there. Am I to expect sort of a dozen Malcolms before <laughs> the Sixth? <laughs> or am I to think that we really are close? We really are on the home okay. stretch. Now, before we get started, we are. We'll just quickly, once again, ask for <laughs> indulgence. Please tell your friends about this show. Namely, Rex Factor, the animated show. We're doing a Kickstarter appeal to fund uh, an exciting new project to have an animated version of this podcast. Um, it's running all through August 2017. So if you can pledge and get one of the lovely rewards yep. and also tell everybody you know and get them to have a look, that would be really, really helpful. So let's yes. get back to grips with the Scots. Mm. We're in the era of the Jameses. Yes. And they've been a little bit similar in many yeah. ways. We've got mi- minorities. Yeah. Lots of early promise. Mm. Rebellion and early violent deaths. Yeah, they seem. That's right. I mean, it's all come back to me now. They seem to sort of one person would finish off the other one's reign in a, yeah. in a funny kind of way. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So James I was king from 1407 to 37. He removed the powerful Albany Stuart cousins mm. um, and showed a lot of early promise, but then he lost face for his rather high handed rule and some military setbacks and was murdered by his rivals in the sewers. Mm-hmm. Aged just 43. Oh, yes. Yeah, brilliant death. Yeah. His son, James II, was king from 1437 to 60, murdered uh, Earl Douglas, the most powerful man in the kingdom, besides the king, defeated his brothers in a civil war, led a successful attack on the town of Roxburgh, but then killed uh, during the siege of the castle when a cannon next to him exploded. Oh, yes. He was just 29. And then his son, James III, was king from 1460 to 88. He secured the Northern Isles, Orkney and Shetland for Scotland, stripped the Lord of the Isles of his lands and titles, but then suffered a double rebellion from his brother and the nobles. Yeah. Um, He survived that, but was still pretty unpopular and was defeated and killed in 1488 in the Battle of Sockyburn by his subjects aged 36. And he didn't get the Rex Factor. He did not get the Rex Factor. But will his son do any better? His son, of course, James IV. Oh, they need to, they, honestly, <laughs> just get a new name. Son of James III and Margaret of Denmark. He was born on the 17th of March, 1473, so he's about 15 years old when he becomes king in 1488. Well, that's nearly a sweet spot, actually. Exactly, so that's yeah. older than the others. Yeah. But how is he going to look on the Heritage Limited playing card, Ali? Um... <sighs> I have no knowledge about this person's reign at all, but I'm predicting, as I say, near the sweet spot, you know, mm. if you're 16, 18, we're looking at a young Renaissance king. Uh, but having said that, it's quite wary, so he'll be armoured up, but we're to, uh, but he'll be handsome, good looking young chap, armoured up. Let's have a look. Okay, stretchy, stretchy, and big reveal. I thought that was a bird on his finger. <laughs> I thought, the first thing I saw, I thought he was a keen falconer. Um, he does look very good, though, I have to say. He's, uh, 
I'm trying really hard not to say it, but I really wasn't expecting him <laughs> to be holding the um, clubs there. Um, he's got the lion rampant on his chest. He's got he's armoured to the teeth, really. But a lovely sword. Yeah, I mean, he looks... He looks the boss. He's got a curled up, rolled up, I should say, um, uh, document in his hand. So mm. I'm predicting good battliness, good subjectivity. Now, we have a, a contemporary description of James IV from a Spanish ambassador, Pedro de Ayala. So from 1498, when James is about 25. Mm. He is of noble stature, neither tall nor short, <laughs> and as handsome in complexion and shape as a man can be. His address is very agreeable. He never cuts his hair or his beard. It becomes him very well. That's basically what I said. Now, the card doesn't have a uh, massive Merlin beard. No. But maybe we'll find out what happens to the beard later in the episode. <gasps> oh, no. You get it pulled off. <laughs> by John. By John. Yeah. <laughs> Rises from the dead. <laughs> I'll have that. Yoink. <laughs> so, early years for James IV, as his father, um, after a rebellion in 1482, um, is still very unpopular. And James IV does not seem to have had a good relationship with his father. That could be good news. Perhaps yeah. after that rebellion, he seems to have been sidelined because oh. James IV was very much um favourite of his mother and mother and father seem to have become estranged. Yeah. So he grew up with his mother at Stirling. And James III, his father, seemed instead to favour the younger of his sons, made him the Duke of Ross and proposed a marriage with uh, one of the daughters of Elizabeth Woodville. Oh, yeah. And in fact, James III, I don't know if I mentioned this in the last episode, actually proposed himself to marry Elizabeth Woodville. Really? After Edward was dead? dead. Yeah. Mm, that would have been an interesting one. But you imagine that, the father marrying the mother, the younger brother marrying one of the daughters, but nothing for James IV. <laughs> that would be an awkward Christmas time. So, yeah. Well, mind you, you could double up on the presents. Indeed. <laughs> to mother-in-law slash... Sister, whatever it is. So in 1488 at 15, James is actually the sort of seen as the leader of the rebellion against his father. Right. So he's actually with the rebel forces. Interestingly, he's the first uh, Scot to be crowned at Schoon since James the first. Huh. So maybe they were trying to make it feel a bit more kind of legitimate mm. and harking back because of the slight awkwardness <laughs> of having toppled his own father. Now, there wasn't a regency declared because he was 15. He's kind of old enough yeah. if he wants to. But he does seem to have deliberately just let other people kind of take the lead and had a bit of fun. I think I would have done that at 15. And it's quite clever, really, because he gets to learn from the mistakes without being blamed for them himself, Ooh. which is quite canny. Um, there's a bit of a narrow clique in 1488 of the rebels, um, but there are a couple of million rebellions that actually lead to rather more broad administrations in terms of who's in it. So right. previously, the minorities have often seen somebody come to the fore and mm. be really powerful, and it's been a bit chaotic. James the Fourth. It's not actually too bad. They oh, largely good. kind of. That's work the together. first time in this series of Scots that <laughs> we've seen the lords not um, being their own worst enemy. Mm. I mean, they do have a bit of infighting, but they kind of all decide to just forgive each other just and carry out. on. Yeah. So James actually takes control in about 1495, 96, when he's sort of 21, 22, that sort of age. Okay, so that's we're really starting now. Yeah, and unlike his father, he's very charming. Eager to be seen by his people, mm. eager to chat and get on with his nobles. Um, so he's actually a very popular king, and he's intelligent. He's very much a Renaissance man, as you uh -huh. predicted. He's interested in culture, in science. He loves chivalry and all the pageantry of sort of medieval kingship. Right. So he's he's all about the show, James the Fourth. 
unlike his neighbour down the south. Exactly. And uh, unlike his predecessors, he doesn't come into his majority by having to remove a regent in some kind of bloody coup mm. and kill off a whole lot of family. The government pretty much stays unchanged. The only difference is that James is now telling it what to do. Mm. So it's all quite stable, all quite positive, and all quite, you know, all quite good. I'm quite surprised, though, once the uh, nobles got their act together mm. and realised that they could you know, just all govern mm. happily... There's no real need for this king chap, you know. We could just... I mean, I shouldn't overemphasise the extent to which they were all getting on very, very happily. I mean, they probably had found a way to not okay. kill each other. But the king still at this time is the one that ensures that everyone's not killing each other. Yeah. Okay. So, James now needs to establish control and establish himself as a figure within Scotland and also within Europe. Mm. So, first of all, we've got the Lords of the Isles. Oh, not them again. Now, I suggested last time that they were completely done with. Yeah. Because John MacDonald, the previous lord in the 1470s, was made to submit and give all his lands and titles up to James III. It was all very humiliating. Yeah, all sorted. That's fine. Unfortunately, this was too much for the people in the Western Isles of Scotland. So his illegitimate son, the brilliantly named Angus Og, rebels against his father, throws him out and defeats him in a very bloody battle and just becomes Lord himself, and he's doing his own thing. Just proclaims himself Lord now, so it's that's quite a rebellion against this chap. Mm. Um, he actually then gets killed, Angus Og, mm. and then there's really just sort of lawlessness. Nobody's in charge, but equally the Crown is struggling to get control itself. Mm. And it takes quite a few expeditions. 1493, the Lordship is formally made forfeit to the Crown, but it's not until sort of between 1501 to 07 that the grandson of John MacDonald, Donald Duff, Oh, so close. So close. I've been waiting two years for that. That Donald Duff is finally uh, defeated and imprisoned by James, and at this point there really isn't going to be a new lord any time soon. I no longer believe you. Well. (laughs) Until next week. Until next week, but at least for James IV, Lordship of the Isles. Okay, fine. Now, he also has to deal with European affairs, particularly his neighbour in the south, Henry VII, Mm -hmm. in England. And in 1496, he sees an opportunity to um, make his entrance on the international stage by using a chap called Perkin Warbeck. No. Now, this is the... Uh, a prince in the tower. A Flemish youth posing as the younger of the two princes in the tower. So he's claiming to be, effectively, the rightful king yeah. against Henry VII. So he goes to Scotland and uh, James champions his cause. I, I thought he just sort of came out of the woodwork and... Well, yeah, carry on. This <laughs> will tell me oh, what yeah. actually happens. Well, yeah, so he uh, champions uh, Perkins' cause, has a little raid into uh, northern England. It doesn't really come to anything, but James isn't really bothered about making Perkin king. He just wants to force Henry VII to come to terms with him and treat him as an equal. Oh, OK, so he's not actually, like, it's not, he's not mounting a an invasion force as such. It's not... He's not trying to overthrow Henry with this Perkin chap. It's just... Using him as a pawn in the... Prick him in the side of it. And it works rather well, because in 1502, Scotland and England signed the Treaty of Perpetual Peace. How did that go? (laughs) Well, yes. (laughs) The war to end all wars. And then the next year, in 1503, James IV marries Henry VII's eldest daughter, Margaret Tudor. Yes! That Philippa Gregory book. Yes, you do know about this chap. Oh, my word! That's this chap. He's really nice. There we go. <laughs> According to Philippa Gregory. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, their first meeting was expected to be at Edinburgh, 
but because James is all about the chivalry, he comes to see her privately at Dalkeith, further south. And he's dressed casually in his velvet coat and his long auburn hair and beard on display. <laughs> Discover the shared love of music, so apparently he played his lute for her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he went home to get it. <laughs> and they played some cards. Yeah. Um, but afterwards, the ladies asked Margaret what she thought about James, and uh, she commented that his beard was too long. Ah. Oh. I mean, she was so tedious in that book. <laughs> she doesn't get a great rep, no. Margaret. Uh, but James hears about this, and so ahead of the wedding, he cuts off his beard for Margaret. Ah, oh, hence so, the card. Hence so the it wasn't card. John. No, uh, it was Margaret. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, they do get married. He's mm. got got rid of his beard with great splendour at Holyrood. Uh, five days of feasting and pageantry, so we got lots of tournaments, jousting, all that sort of stuff going on. Celebrated in a poem of the time called The Thistle and the Rose. Ah, uh, yeah, I see what they did. Mm. And so by 1507, James really looking good. He's dominated now the Western Isles. A prestigious marriage has bore him a son and heir. Yeah. Uh, he receives a papal sword and hat from Pope Julius II. <laughs> you know, in my mind, I've got one of those sort of caps that you can buy from a stall outside the Vatican or something, and a plastic <laughs> sword saying Pope hat. Oh. And a plastic sword. It makes him, it seem so straightforward. Sort mm. the West out, have a good alliance, have a son. Yeah. Easy. Pat, pat on the head from the Pope. Yeah. He's popular among his nobles and indeed among his subjects. Government's very stable. He's presiding over a glittering Renaissance court. Lovely. But there's always a but. Mm. It's the same old problems. Not the, not that family. Europe. Oh. The old. Oh, the old alliance got you all that. In Europe, things are coming to a bit of a head. Louis XII of France is rising to be really very, very powerful on the continent, and nobody else likes this. Mm. So Ferdinand and Isabella in Spain established the Holy League, which is an alliance with Spain, Venice, and Pope Julius in opposition to France. Mm. Now, this is awkward for Scotland, because with the old alliance, they've got centuries-old tradition of being an ally of France. Yeah. So James is trying to mediate for peace in this period, because he doesn't want any part in this. He doesn't want to have to be dragged into a war and he certainly doesn't want to have to be pushed against France. Mm. Now, a key player in all of this, of course, is England. Mm. Now, Henry VII is quite a sensible, careful, diplomatic chap who doesn't really want to push the boat out too much. He just wants to secure things at home. Yeah, because he's got a dodgy claim. But in 1509, Henry VII dies. Yeah. And he's replaced by you-know-who... Oh, the big fat man. It's Henry VIII. Unlike his father, um, the teenage Henry VIII, as he is, lusts after glory. Mm. He wants to emulate Henry V and basically conquer France. Yeah. And he is also the son-in-law of uh, Ferdinand and Isabella because he's married to Catherine of Aragon, their daughter. So in 1511, Henry VIII joins the Holy League against France. Does make an awful lot of sense. It does for him, but it also means that relations between James and Henry deteriorate very quickly. But this Henry, Henry VIII, mm. is this James's, James IV's, brother-in-law. He is the brother-in-law, yes. So we're sort of all right? We're just... You'd hope are... that, but I think really for Henry, anything which doesn't help him be a hero and conquering France is seen as something to be dismissed out of hand. Yeah. And unfortunately, into that camp, we can put all of Scotland. Yeah, I mean, marriages don't mean an awful lot to this man, do they? No. <laughs> Indeed, yes. <laughs> uh, 
so as I said, James had tried to mediate and remain above it, but ultimately the French made him make him some very sizable incentives of great big pension, and so consequently James commits and reaffirms, resigns the old alliance with France. Um, so there was pressure from the French to do that, but was there uh, uh, equal pressure from Henry? Is he not trying to woo James to not do that? He doesn't try to woo James in any way whatsoever. Right. Um, but he does. he's very much a stick man in this case, Henry. So James <laughs> does get excommunicated because it's the Holy League and the Pope is opposed to France. He, you're right, he is totally stick. There's no carrot there at all, is there? So despite his sword and hat that the Pope had given him, James has now been excommunicated. So his hat and sword, they won't work anymore? They won't work, no. no, They've lost their mystical powers. Now, he's only going to be excommunicated if he invades England. Yeah. But in 1513, when Henry invades France, James, of course, feels he's got to do the honourable thing, and he invades England. Takes on Henry VIII. Your man. Well, Henry VIII isn't there, because Henry VIII is in France. But... So he's actually taking on the regency of Catherine of Aragon. Yeah. But, you know, you've got to expect some vengeance from this man. So, we have the Battle of Flodden. Open battle between England and Scotland. First mm. one for a very long time. Um, English forces led by the elderly Earl of Surrey. And right at the start, he outmanoeuvres James and gets into a better position. The Scots have got these new sort of European pikes which are very long, like 20 feet long, but they're quite difficult to uh, deploy in the battle, particularly with a lot of muddy Mm. ground because there's been some bad weather. Sadly, the Scots suffer a terrible defeat, losing lots and lots of nobles, thousands of ordinary soldiers, and at the age of 40, James IV is killed in battle. Oh, that is so disappointing. Mm. He just, he had everything. The looks, the wit, (laughs) (laughs) the perfect package. Uh, uh, The whole package, I mean, yeah. Poor old James uh, afterwards doesn't really get particularly uh, honourably treated. His body's identified at Berwick Mm. um, and then sent off to London. Catherine of Aragon apparently wanted to send his body to Henry in France as a trophy, but Englishman's heart wouldn't stomach it. Mm. (laughs) Um, So instead she just sent his bloodied uh, coat. Um, but because he'd been excommunicated, um, the churches wouldn't bury him. So Henry, having come back, had to get special permission from the Pope to actually bury James. Oh, if he just waited a few more years, <laughs> it would have all been all right. Now, years later, workmen apparently found James's remains when doing some work and where he was buried. Car park? Uh, not sure if it was a car park, but uh, again, they don't treat him with a lot of respect. Apparently they cut off his head and used it as a football. What? It hang on, <laughs> hang on, modern day scandal. Oh, it's not modern day, we're still in Tudor period. Oh, okay, I thought we were talking about the 70s or something. <laughs> it becomes something of a curio of Lancelot Young, who is the master glazier of Elizabeth I, until eventually it's given an anonymous burial. Huh, blimey, Bill, Rex, fact. Hmm. But that is interesting, though. That um, I mean, Philippa Gregory goes into this in, in insane detail, <laughs> but Margaret... Mm. sister-in-law by marriage obviously yeah. uh doing horrible things to her husband like wanting to send his head off to Catherine doing horrible things to Margaret's, Margaret's husband. husband yeah and meanwhile they're writing letters to each other like <laughs> how are you doing sister and stuff I've just you know, <laughs> slaughtered your husband yeah. very odd very I just can't get my head around things like that yeah I suppose it's a bit like the uh first world war with Royal families going at each other. Mm, except it's not actually their own. Not on the battle, bodies. yeah. Horrible. Horrible. 
Anyway, that is uh, the life and reign of James IV, but let's see how he gets on when we review him. Mm. Battleliness! Now, there's perhaps a slightly shorter than usual biography. The reason I've done that is because there's lots and lots of stuff to get into, so I thought it'd be better to mm. do a shortened biography, and then we'll go into more detail in yeah. the factors. Good. So, first of all, the good stuff. Yeah. Something which is easy to overlook, but 1488, he does actually become king by overthrowing his father. Good point. His father is defeated in the Battle of Sockyburn. The details are unclear, but James III is defeated, he is killed, James IV becomes king. It's uh, brilliant. I mean, usually, and we're not giving anything away, we give an awful lot of points for that. Indeed. How much actual involvement in the battle did he have? Unclear. Maybe he's just a figurehead, maybe he's supporting but not actually fighting. It's quite young at 15, mm. so maybe he wasn't really involved, but he would have been there. Now, the Lord of the Isles. Mm. They dominate the Western Isles and parts of the mainland as well. John MacDonald had been sort of put to uh, sleep pasture <laughs> in the 1470s. He actually lives until like the 16th, early 16th century, John, wow. but just in a abbey somewhere not really doing anything that is the best out this in this <laughs> in this torrid game of thrones there is only re- usually one escape and that's either death or abbey yeah. and you just I'd get out early and he's overthrown by his illegitimate son Angus Og mm-hmm. which is a great name wonderful but in 1490 he's murdered in his sleep by his irish harpist <laughs> so not funny But so weird. It is weird. The Irish harpist is then himself later ripped apart by two horses. Not in not vicious horses, but he's tied and then Oh as a punishment, right. Go in separate directions. Yeah. Um and there isn't then a Lord of the Isles, so we just sort of have this state of lawlessness. Mm. So they're not beholden to the crown, they're not beholden to a specific lord, so it's ever so slightly chaotic. So in fourteen ninety three, James um had the lordship formally made forfeit to the crown, and he actually goes in person to Dunstaffnage, which is the ancient seat of the lordship, to receive homage from the local lords. But there's still lots of unrest. Mm. It's not sorted out. So again, James goes in person to uh, Tarbert Castle to show the flag, yeah. as it were. So there's a naval expedition is led to capture and repair Dunavity Castle in Kintyre. And then 1495, James is back again to Mingarry Castle to receive more homage from the nobles. Mm, Unfortunately, they don't all turn up. (laughs) So what they're trying to do is use basically just powerful lords in the area to try and sort it out. The problem is that they're just doing their own thing and there's still more Mm. unrest. Now, there is an illegitimate grandson of John MacDonald called Donald Duff. Um, he's actually imprisoned from 1490 to 1501 in Inisconnel Castle on Loch Awe. That's a long time. However, a chap called Torkel McLeod of Lewis helps him to escape. And Torkel thinks, well, we've got this chap, use him as a puppet, and we've got a way of resisting the crown because we can get a rebellion around Lord of the Isles again. Mm. So once again, 1504, James has to supervise the creation of another fleet at Dumbarton, another army. They capture the castle of Cairnabur on, on Mull. Yeah. which is where they think Donald Duff is staying. Unfortunately, he was actually with Torkel and Stornoway, which is in Lewis. Oh, dear. Yeah. So then they persuade, uh, besieged Stornoway Castle, and finally, in 1507, they capture the castle, capture Donald Duff, and Torkel is sent into exile and dies in 1511. But anyway, they have brought them to heel. Yeah. No more Lord of the Isles. This episode. Perkin Warbeck mm. was a very interesting uh, little... Chap. 
chap. <laughs> Sounds like it should be the start of the limerick, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, go, yeah, write in if you can finish that <laughs> off for us. Um, so Perkin, actually, he does get a lot of interest from people in Europe. He gets patronage from Charles VIII of France uh, before he dies, the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian, and a rebellious Ulster Lord Hugh O'Donnell, who seems to be quite friendly with James IV, has a meeting with James and suggests that he takes him in. I mean, I'm sure we did this in Henry's uh, episode. Mm. Is there any chance this was... Well, he looks a lot like Edward IV. It's interesting that Lambert Simnel, who is the other, yeah. both of these guys pretend to be the younger son, who probably people oh, might not have known who he was. It's definitely suspicious that there's two of them. <laughs> yes. What I claim is even more suspicious. It's dire straight saying, two men claiming they're Jesus, one of them must be wrong. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, And also, do you know what I'd do if I were Perkin Warbeck and pretending to be Richard? Change the name. If he comes along <laughs> saying my name's Perkin Warbeck, I'm Richard. His name's Perkin Warbeck. It's the wrong name. <laughs> Change the name first. I've discovered a flaw. Um, but generally thought not to have been a legitimate claimant. Probably Yorkist agents find a boy that looks a lot like Edward IV, train him. I've got medieval montage going on in my head of him sort of learning how to use a sword and <laughs> someone in front of him going, Perkin Warbeck, Perkin Warbeck, Perkin Warbeck. And that's where they went wrong. Um, now, at this time, Henry VII has been considering meddling in Scottish affairs, undermining um, unity with a couple of formerly rebellious lords that yeah. are now staying in England. But he then has some more difficulties at home. Yeah. Perkin Warbeck is one example. He has other rebellions he has to deal with. Now, Spain are trying to persuade Henry to get involved and fight against France. Mm. So they really want to make sure that there isn't war between Scotland and England because they think that will stop yeah. Henry getting involved. So the Spanish try to uh, sweeten James, and they dangle Catherine of Aragon as a potential marriage alliance with Scotland. The same one? The same one. Now, she is, of course, intended for, Hen well, for Arthur the yeah. originally. Um, now, apparently, explicit instructions are sent to the Spanish ambassadors in Scotland, telling them that, basically, they don't actually have anyone for James to marry, but they need to string him along as long as possible. Unfortunately, the letter gets to Scotland before the ambassadors, and thus James gets to read it. <laughs> oh, oh, no, it's like sending a text to the wrong person, talking <laughs> about that person. So he knows exactly what's going on. Mm. Henry, in a bid to try and sweeten James, offers him a very prestigious marriage to the daughter of the Countess of Wiltshire. Doesn't sound, doesn't sound very good. It's not very good. James says, no, thank you. Yeah, quite right. So James is looking to force Henry's hand rather more, and he's also you know, thinking mm. that the Spanish stuff going on is just messing him around. He needs to do his own thing. He needs to show them that he needs to be taken seriously. Yeah, but he at the moment, he's like the prettiest girl at the ball. Everyone wants him. Mm. So, Perkin Warbeck gives him such an opportunity. Yeah. So, um, he offers him a, a lovely welcome to Scotland, um, receives him as Prince Richard of England. Mm. So, he does a bit of PR for Perkin. It's like, I dropped the Perkin Warbeck. <laughs> Go for the English one. Yeah. Um, he's given a bodyguard in Yorkist colours. Very clever. Um, and he's given a marriage to a distant cousin of James, the uh, daughter of the Earl of Huntley. So he's getting all the credentials now. Mm, and it's celebrated with a grand tournament. Mm. And then in 1496, uh, James and Perkin Warbeck lead an invasion of northern England. Right. L lay the countryside to waste, besiege Norham Castle. Um, there isn't actually much of an outpouring of support for Perkin Warbeck. And um, after a 
little bit of time, they just sort of give up and head back to Scotland once they know that an English army's coming. <laughs> yeah. So on the one hand, maybe not massively impressive from a battling perspective, but it's really more about raid and diplomacy for James than it is about actually... Um, a quick idea. If they had kept Perkin Warbeck back mm. and deployed him... at the, Deploy um, the Warbeck. Deploy the Warbeck... <laughs> Um, what would it be? Thirty years later, hmm. at the time of the Pilgrimage of Grace, hmm. would forty per- years later would but would Perkin Warbeck have been a Catholic? <laughs> there will be a moment. <laughs> yes, I'm predicting this. He sends Warbeck packing at this point, so he's no more use. Sends him off to Ireland, and Warbeck's captured the next year and executed in 1499. But. James has succeeded in demonstrating that he is a threat. The Spanish send ambassadors... Well, there's a bit of a cold war between him and Henry, but the Spanish send ambassadors to sue for peace. And as we said, we get a treaty in 1502, and then he gets to marry Henry's eldest daughter. The following yeah, year. that's an incredible coup, isn't it? Mm. Really, really big news. Now, something rather unexpected that James does, which is very impressive, is he builds a Scottish navy. Which is not something that we've been talking about in previous episodes. Not at all. The big stuff comes on the east coast of Scotland. Um, James founds uh, new harbours at New Haven in 1504 and the Pools of Earth in 1506, as well as new fortifications along Mm. the coast. And he personally um, goes out in small boats to inspect the location, see where it would be best to build the harbours. He is brilliant. Mm. He really is. He's got he's got this king thing down to a T. When they're building new ships, he pops along, gives rewards to the labourers and encouragement. See, he's lovely. Spends a huge amount of money on his ships, which is something I'm sure you can <laughs> exactly. get behind. <laughs> yeah. So about a third of his royal income is just going on ships. He is my kind of man. Brilliant. But he has four what are called great ships. So these are real big warships. Mary Rose types. Well, yeah, so one of them, Margaret, named after his wife, uh, wife four masts, six to seven hundred tons. Wow! It's about the size of the Mary Rose. Um, as it's being built, each milestone is met with a grand celebration, so he dine on board the ships, hang special tapestries. But then in 1511, his real biggie is the Great Michael. 240 feet long, with a beam of uh, 56 feet, planks, twen- uh, 20, uh, planks 10 feet thick, and weighing about a thousand tons, carries thirty-six great guns, three hundred lesser pieces. It's got a crew of three hundred sailors, a thousand marines, and an ordnance served by one hundred and twenty gunners. Costs about thirty thousand pounds to build, and at the time, it's the largest warship in Europe. That is monstrous. It's about double the size of the Mary Rose. That's blown my little mind mm-hmm. because when you were first talking about this, the navy, mm. I had really very small ships in mind, and then you said, "Oh, but there's artillery." And I thought, "Oh, yeah, of course, we're in the Put time some of crossbows of on a rowing boat." <laughs> Effectively, that's what I was thinking. You know, with that sort of, um, but that's that's a serious shipbuilding capability now. It really is. Now, obviously, Henry VIII can't stand for this, so the next year he builds a bigger one called the Great Harry. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, called the Great Harry. Mike, <laughs> he's insufferable, that man. Now, you could argue that this navy is really much larger than anything that the Scots could actually use it for. Right. But I, I imagine that's not a criticism yeah. that you'd really yeah, <laughs> be interested fine. in. Yeah. Um, it doesn't do an awful lot. In 1513, they raid in the sort of campaign against England, it raids Carrickfergus in Ireland. Um, as a sort of diversionary tactic, and it's then meant to go to France to join up to help yeah. them, but it's actually a bit late to really help. 
So it's a bit of a spruce goose. And after James dies, it's too expensive to maintain, so it gets sold to the French at a bargain price. That is the almost exact story of the Yamato, Yamato, the Japanese giant mm. battleship from the mm. Second World War, of it just being too precious to actually use, and then, <laughs> then in the end they just ram it into the beach and have it as uh, artillery pieces sitting on the beach. <laughs> it's a sad story. Now, obviously, 1513 doesn't end well for James, but it started pretty well. He invades England with an army of about 30,000 men and a good number of heavy siege guns, so it's probably the biggest and best-prepared Scottish army ever to invade England. And early on, he has some success. They capture Norham Castle, Mm. which he'd failed to take in 1496. Apparently, it once resisted the siege for two years. Because James has got proper guns, it falls in five days. Ah. And he also captures Ettel and Ford Castle as well. So he's had a few, uh, mm. few victories along the way. It's like a, quite a good campaign. I mean, I'm no supporter of castle violence. No. But, you know, this is good stuff. Now, the biggie for battliness, of course, is the Battle of Flodden. Yes. This is on the 9th of September, 1513. And, obviously, there's an extent to which you might see this as a bit of a negative for James. Mm, I'm going to try really hard not to. I don't know why I'm, I'm rooting for this man. Well, there's quite a bit of debate to have. So, first of all, we'll go into what happens at Flodden. Mm. Being a chivalrous chap, obviously James gives the English a month's warning that he's going to come along and invade. Really? So, Catherine of Aragon, as regent, um, gets the 70 year old Earl Surrey to raise an army to go up north and face the Scots. Now, at the battle, the Scots are very well positioned on the slopes of a hill. So, they've got their siege guns facing down, ready to attack the English, mm. so the English are going to have to come uphill, mm. guns firing down on them, and the Scots have got uh, these 20 feet long pikes, yeah. which have been sent specially, Swiss pikes are known, they're sent specially by Louis Twelfth. So um, they're very effective, so you draw up in square, you advance in tight formation, very, very long. You can't you... get near them. Brilliant. Now, Surrey takes a bit of a gamble, which rather pays off early on, and what he does is he moves his troops around the hill, to effectively cut off the Scottish route of retreat. So he's actually between the Scots and Scotland. Right. The other impact, of course, is that the guns are facing the wrong way. Uh, yeah. So the Scots have to uh, yeah. move them around. And they're very heavy, some of these guns. So they're not actually able to manoeuvre all of them quite into the right place. God, you'd feel annoyed, wouldn't you? You'd got it all set up. It'd be like, in, I don't know if you ever played it, we talked about this before, but Red Alert 2, build your base, and you're like, okay, now attack me. Yeah. And then realise that they've just, they can't come that way, it's not <laughs> fair. But still, the Scots are at the top of the hill. Yeah. It's going to be difficult for the English. Mm. So we have an artillery battle between the English guns and the Scottish guns. Now, the Scottish guns are bigger and more powerful, but they're probably better suited for sieges than they are for this sort of encounter. The Scottish guns have got a slower rate of fire. Okay, yeah. And consequently, they ultimately get taken out by the English guns. Okay, because they're smaller but more rapid and they mm. can... Okay. So, James still thinks that they've got a pretty good uh, position. He identifies a weakness on the English right, so sends in troops there with some success. And then he personally takes control of the pikemen and charge downhill towards his nemesis, the Earl of Surrey. Amazing! Now, unfortunately for the Scots, they've not really had long enough to train in how best to maintain the close formation with the pikes and how best to use them. And because the land's quite boggy as well, it's difficult to stay together. Yeah. A particular problem is when they get to the bottom of the hill, there's a little stream ahead 
of where the English troops oh. are. So you kind of lose all the momentum of the charge as then you have to And you've got people in a giant square formation with 20-foot pikes trying to get over a stream. Yeah. That, I mean, if the consequences weren't so horrific, that would have been hilarious. Yeah. People pole vaulting over using a sharp stick. Yeah. <laughs> so then the Scots more slowly come to the English troops close quarter fighting the pikes really really long aren't very manoeuvrable mm. the english have got shorter bills which are sort of hooked um, yeah. halberds um, and these can cut the heads off the pikes and then obviously cut the heads off <laughs> the scots unfortunately um james is caught in the thick of the fighting so he isn't able to sort of direct what's oh, going yeah. on now so james is killed 10 earls nine lords of parliament one archbishop <laughs> a bishop Two, admiral, uh, two abbots, the Lord High Treasurer, Admiral and Constable of Scotland, n- many, many knights and thousands of ordinary troops are killed in this defeat. It is, that is a, quite a rout. The criticism is he invades England in this sort of quixotic, chivalric gesture that really has no place in the modern world. Mm. And James is drawn to the chivalric stuff. He's maybe got a bit of a vainglorious nature. Yeah. And apparently the uh, French king's wife, Anne of Brittany, sent James a ring pleading him to invade when Henry VIII invaded France, where she said, Take but three paces into English ground and break a lance for my sake. So historian R.L. Mackey said that James was a moonstruck romantic whose eyes were ever at the ends of the earth. Oh, that's nice. It's nice, but perhaps it wasn't practical and pragmatic in the circumstances. In James's defence... He's really in a difficult position because he's got those ties to France. He's tried to act as a mediator. He's done everything he can to avoid antagonising the papacy. But you might say that he makes his own bad luck in terms of how the battle goes. Many blame him personally for the disaster. That he was playing at being a knight rather than being a general. Yes. Now, when you were saying that he was in the thick of it and couldn't really control the forces, Mm. in my mind, I remembered... Uh, Napoleon and Wellington right mm. at the back very capable but just surveying the scene yeah and maybe it's because he was young oh no he wasn't by this age he was 40, 40 by this point yeah but it was his first pitched battle first big pitched battle but interestingly the Spanish ambassador Ayala this is going back to when James 15 years earlier he wrote this uh, about James he said he is not a good captain because he begins to fight before he has given his orders I've seen him often undertake most dangerous things in the last wars. I sometimes clung to his skirts and succeeded in keeping him back. On such occasions, he does not take the least care of himself. Uh, yeah, pretty good good judge of character, that chap. Mm. Now, in his defence, as he said, it was actually a very well-prepared army. Mm. They're united, which they haven't always been. They've got good artillery. Mm. And the pikes had done pretty well in Europe, so there's no reason to think they wouldn't be very good. They maybe just didn't have enough time to... Yeah, they've got the latest weapons if yeah. they deploy it. And the Scots would have expected James to be at the front and fighting. Mm. And, you know, what actually would have been at once all the soldiers were in the thick of it, what was he going to do from the hill? Yeah, true. But do we have any details on, on his actual death? Is it quite heroic? I mean, it's in the thick of it, but, you know, sometimes we hear... He's said to have been found within a spear length of the banners of the Earl of Surrey. So apparently he probably, in the thick of the fighting, he may well have been able to tell that things weren't going well. So it does seem like he sort of gathers his men around him and leads this kind of last Homeric charge for glory 
at Surrey. Like, just like Bosworth. Just like Bosworth, Richard III charging at Henry VII. He's found with uh, having been wounded by arrows and uh, one of the bills, the English bills. Arrows? Yeah. At close quarters, crikey. Yeah. And he is the last monarch to die in battle in the British Isles. Again, kind of like Richard or like Harold II at Hastings, he loses, but it's quite... It's good. Heroic yeah. fight, and that's the way to go out if you want to have a sort of legendary, glorious defeat. And if you are going to go out, take a record with you. Mm. And Ayala, the ambassador, has a more positive gloss, mm. if we were to do the full quote. He is courageous, even more so than a king should be. He said to me that his subjects serve him with their persons and goods, in just and unjust quarrels, exactly as he likes, and that therefore he does not think it right to begin any warlike undertaking without being himself the first in danger. His deeds are as good as his words. Yeah, I mean, th- that is chivalry, isn't it? Mm. But on a medieval battlefield, forget it. The, the big downside is, of course, that... It's a massive, massive defeat for the Scots, and he and loads of the nobles are killed. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what have you got on the negatives? Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, I. Oh, I'm so conflicted, Graham. I mean, there's actually quite a lot of, you know, the Western Isles, Perkin Warbeck, and the diplomacy, the massive navy. I think, yeah, no, I think he's got. Heroism at Flodden. Yeah, I thought he's. I think he's got kinging down to a T. Mm. If this were a hundred years earlier, it would have been even better. I think that that style of kinging is changing, mm. and it's perhaps just at the wrong time. We could almost cancel out the death in battle mm. by the manner of his coming to power, mm. the blooming massive warships actually, mm. and even in that death, it's a great. Everyone remembers Flodden. Mm. Uh, and what a way to go, charging at the Yeah, end. yeah. I like it, Graham, mm. and I'm aware that my opinion is somewhat coloured by the fact that I like him. And he built a lot of big and boats. And he built an awful <laughs> lot of big boats, uh, just because he could. Um, six. Hmm, I'm... Uh... Yeah, it's it's tricky because Flodden is such a bad defeat. Yeah. You feel like it should be going down. And yet, so like with Hastings was a very bad defeat, but we gave... I mean, Harold obviously had the Stamford Bridge victory earlier. Uh, in the epic charge back. Yeah. yeah. The army's in a really good state with James. He's kind of maybe a bit unlucky. He had all the latest gear. Hmm. He was set up for it, wasn't he? He had all hmm. the artillery pieces, all the extra long sharp spiky sticks, and blooming great warships on the horizon. Hmm. He's there in charge... Charging, <laughs> but as is the nature of battle, he gets one in the um, old neck, doesn't he? Mm. And in fairness, Surrey is a veteran of the Battle of Barnet and the Battle of Bosworth. He really knows what he's doing. Is he Bosworth as well, yeah. Craggy? I'm going to go six and a half. Okay. I think, I think, yeah, I think if he'd had a bigger victory, then we could forgive him Flodden. Oh, yeah. Like if he'd had a big victory against an initial English army and then mm. suffered a terrible defeat, mm. I think we could then be talking seven, eight sort of yeah. scores. I think because Flodden is such a big defeat, even though it's such a sort of heroic death, yeah. maybe that's without wanting to, you know, predict anything in the future, maybe that's something more for considering in the Rex factor yeah. than the battliness. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's twelve and a half for battliness. Scandal. Well, you like your ships, but oh, yeah. you also like your scandal. Ho, ho, ho. 
Now, without wanting to uh, just keep repeating myself, let's not forget how he came to the throne. Yes. He rebelled against his own father, mm-hmm. which... And now, Richard the Lionheart, of course, rebels against Henry II, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure we've ever actually had a successful overthrow of son against father. Oh, it's horrid, isn't it? Just and now I do have a son, I think I've just... <laughs> but you're so cute. And not only does he overthrow his father, but James III ends up dead as a result <laughs> of this rebellion. So we've got sort of patro-regicide here. Oh, yeah. Hang on, can I give it... That deserves a... There we are. Patro-regicide, love it. Now, they have an investigation, very quickly, obviously, and um, the new regime found that James III happened to be slain. <laughs> Brilliant. And James apparently promised the Dean of the Chapel Royal that he would wear an iron chain for the rest of his life to repent for his part in the death of his father. And every Lent he'd add a little bit of extra weight to it. One pound for every year of my life! (laughs) So he is at least culpable in his father's death. Oh, gosh, yeah. No, he he would be... um, one of the signatories on Charles's yeah. old death list. Mm. Major scandal, I'd say. Quite surprising that that hasn't resonated down the years. Mm. And from such a nice man. Yeah. <laughs> so out of character. <laughs> now, the Archbishopric of St Andrews. Oh, yeah, what's he up to? Um, we remember that he had that younger brother that his father had been favouring. Yes. So in 1497, he appoints him as the Archbishop of St Andrews. Right. Which invalidates his claim to the throne. Ah, right. And also means James gets to keep his ducal estates and revenues. Clever. Now, unfortunately, in uh, 1504, his brother dies. How long after that is that? Uh, it's about seven years. Okay. So James needs to find a new and more suitable candidate to be the Archbishop of St Andrews. Hmm. And the best person he can think of is his 11-year-old illegitimate son. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, which also means that he's too young to oversee the Archbishopric, and consequently all of the money and revenues have to revert to the crown. Guys, tricky this, isn't it? I mean, mm. what a pain. So he's seriously, well, how old is this son? Like Eleven. Eleven? Oh, brilliant. He's going to be Archbishop. He's gone, he's gone uh, altar boy, choir boy, Archbishop. That's the in that order. Now... It's all very well killing your father and appointing an 11-year-old as Archbishop of St Andrews, but the only thing that really matters is what happens in the bedroom. Oh, come on. Fingers crossed. All of Rex Factor listeners here are now (laughs) waiting for you to say those three words. He has numerous mistresses and enjoys the company of prostitutes. Oh, so close. But yes. Good, 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 good. Uh, Have any of those prostitutes... Ever worn a habit? By any I chance? mean, I'm sure it's possible. Maybe that was one of his little <laughs> peccadilloes. <laughs> um, numerous mistresses amongst the nobility results in at least seven named illegitimate children. Brilliant. So when Margaret Tudor becomes queen and gets to Serling Castle, she finds that there's a nursery dedicated to all of James's bastards. Yes, I've forgotten about this, this in the book as well. But funnily, it's one of those where, on the one hand, yes, you've got all these illegitimate children, despite his wife there, but there's also a bit of a whiff of Charles II about it. It's yeah. quite nice. He's yeah. looking after them. Yeah, yeah, he's been looking after them. He says to his wife, basically... I am going to look after these children. Hmm. Nice, James. Yeah. 
I am going to continue um, <laughs> seeing these prostitutes. <laughs> but he is also really nice to Margaret. Mm. Um, Ayala, the ambassador, claimed that James's pseudo-minority is effectively maintained by his nobles plying him with attractive women to distract him <laughs> while they were instead. Oh, brilliant. Now, the most famous of his uh, mistresses was a lady called Margaret Drummond. Mm. And she is the great-great-great-great-niece of David II's queen of the same name. Margaret Drummond. Mm. Oh. Now, she's often seen as being James's favourite, if not his true love, and there was a rumour that the nobles feared this relationship would prevent the Tudor marriage alliance oh. ever happening. And in 1501, Margaret and her three sisters all die shortly after eating the same meal. Oh, my word. That isn't so, but there's no suggestion it was James is doing it. It's his nobles, isn't it? Suggestion that it was his nobles. Now, possibly it might just have been food poisoning because, in reality, I think it'd have been pretty easy for her to have been mm. pushed aside. And yeah, because I'm sure it. he would have been quite happy to have continued. Yeah, he wouldn't have bothered really. <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, yeah, dodge, dodge e. Now, in James's defence. Mm-hmm. The only thing I'm going to slightly undermine is appointing his 11-year-old illegitimate son as the Archbishop of St. Andrews. Yeah. Now, he does do that, yeah. but in fairness, he had raised this boy for the clergy. Um, he was being schooled for the church. He was sent to Italy for his schooling and tutored by uh, various people, including Erasmus. Oh, wow. Who thought very highly of him. So there's every possibility he would have made a very good Archbishop of St. Andrews. Uh, so, what are you thinking, Scandal? We've got it's very good juiciness there and a range of activities. I, th- what's our highest one for Scotland so far? Highest score is Robert the Bruce with sixteen. For what? Well, he murdered his rival in a church. I think that unless, uh, spoiler alert, unless mm. Mary can top it, I think we should have. Much like the patiometer, no, not the patiometer anymore, the ediometer. Ediometer. We have to have a maximum and a minimum for it to work. <laughs> I can't see how this isn't more scandalous than that, and there won't be anything. Else. I think it's got to be a nine from me, mm. predicting that there might be a ten. I mean, I think, I mean, Mary will have some scandal, definitely have some mm. scandal. I'm, I'm sure there was more for Robert the Bruce other than just that. I can't remember it off the top of my head at the but moment. Patro regicide. Yep. <laughs> Fantastic amount of sexy scandal. Yeah. There's a bit of dodgy killings. Could have been food poisoning. Who mm. knows? That's very yeah. helpful. Uh, what were the other ones you said? Pointing his 11-year-old illegitimate 11 son. Year old? Okay, no, it's definitely nine for me. Forget <laughs> it. Yeah, I mean, they don't even need to go over it again. That is absolutely <laughs> superb. Uh, I'm going... Uh, I think, I'm thinking eight. Okay. I'm not sure. I think maybe because it's... Uh, for me to go higher, I feel I need something that really resonates a bit stronger. It's just very, very good scandal. Maybe the cover-up aspect of the Patro regicide is enough that I'm like, well, maybe James didn't quite mean for it to happen. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But, it, I mean, I can't believe but that... it's quite whiffy. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe that isn't more well-known, which is the point of this whole thing. It isn't more well-known. Well, I guess that's because of the, uh, of, cause the cover-up. Of cover a great Rex fact, though, there. So I'm going to give him an 8. You're giving him a 9. Mm-hmm. So that's 17 for Scandal. Brilliant. Subjectivity. Well, I mean, you've already said he's a nice chap. He is. And Lovely. he's got some good stuff. 
James III was criticised for failing to travel the country to dis- dispense justice. He hoarded good money while debasing the currency. He's very unpopular. Mm. People keep on rebelling against him. In contrast, James IV regularly traversed the country and was seen by his subjects dispensing justice. Whee! Um, he reorganises the central civic courts as well to make them more efficient. It looks for a way to improve the quality of judges. So in 1496, there's an education act where it was made compulsory for landowners to send their sons to school so they'd be conversant in the law. Mm. Uh, so only because so- the landowners and their sons yeah. are the ones that are going to be the judges. Right, so I think yeah. we'll make sure that they're properly educated. So that means that whoever becomes a judge will have At been least educated yeah. properly. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Really good. Um, now, despite his messing around with St Andrews, he is a very pious king. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> he makes regular pilgrimages, most notably in 1507 when his wife and newborn son were ill, so he went from Edinburgh to the St Ninian Shrine at Whithorn, which is 120 miles. Yeah. And he did that on foot. Ooh. It's quite impressive. Why? Uh, well, because it's, you know... Mm, better? Good thing to do. Okay. Showing his piety. It's quite fun things, see. So it's not just him walking along on his own. He goes with friends and they probably have entertainment and food as they're going along. Yeah. So it's kind of like a festival. I imagine when he receives the raven like in Game of Thrones that <laughs> says, your, your uh, wife and child are sick. He says, lads, road trip. <laughs> um, he also patronises the most zealously austere monastic order, the Observant Friars. The Observant Friars? Hmm. Sound like a 70s punk outfit. <laughs> yeah. uh, and as we said, in 1507, he receives the blessed sword and hat from Pope Julius II. I love that. And he's the first Scottish king since William the Lion in 1202 to receive such an honour. Oh. And we have stability in Scotland. Um, it's at peace throughout James's yeah. reign. The nobility are united. Um, James looks to sort of create a sense of a united Scotland. Mm. So he adopts his father's personal badge of the thistle as the country's heraldic emblem. Oh, is that where... And it's, it's since then that's... Yeah, so it was the James III and James IV that it really becomes... Okay, hence the, the Scottish rugby team's logo. Mm. Promotes Scots as the universal language. Right. So he's the last king of Scotland to speak Gaelic. Rex... Fact. I thought that would have happened a long time ago. And it's a very prosperous period, generally, because of the peace, trade is good, etc. And it is seen as something of a golden age. Mm. It's really the Renaissance flowers in James's reign. He spends lavishly on uh, the Great Hall at Stirling Castle, which you can still see today, as well as others at Edinburgh, Linlithgow, uh, Falkland. Contemporary princes were sort of withdrawing into their private chambers in this period. A little bit, but James very much embraces the medieval hall. So he's there at the centre, this grand hall with tapestries, everybody at court and pageantry and celebrations. This is this. Uh, this is all ties up with a willingness to go on crusade and their chivalry and all that sort of stuff. Isn't exactly. It? You'll be delighted to know it's also a great period for poetry in Scotland. Oh, every <clears> time, <throat> Graham. I, oh. It's the age of the Macars, as they're known. Oh, I love them. Poets like Robert Henryson, who uh, wrote Fables, William Dunbar, who's probably most significant, Gavin Douglas, who in 1513 um, published the first translation into English of Virgil's Aeneid. Right. Which is quite impressive. The English haven't managed this yet, so that's quite a major classical text. I was about to fall off my seat. I thought you were going to recite some for me. Uh, Dunbar writes various poems to mark public events, like The Thistle and the Rose, we mentioned, serious religious works, but also court entertainments and satires. 
Oh. So you'd read them out Sounds at court right. and everybody has fun. Some poems are incredibly rude. So apparently these are among the first printed examples of the F and C words. No. Hmm. In, in front of the king? By a, 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 a friar. <laughs> This one of the one of the observant friars. Yeah. I've said it sounded like a punk bad. I'm now thinking like they're um they're actually like some just really careful fish and chip shop overs. Fifteen oh seven. James approved the installation of Scotland's first printing press. Uh, yes. What fifteen? Uh, so when was Gutenberg? It's fourteen eighties okay, for England. Right, yeah. so it's a bit later, but nevertheless, James yeah. is the one that does it. Uh, the first work was Lydgate's Complaint of the Black Knight. He uh, promotes learning. So in fourteen ninety seven, he establishes the first university medical faculty at Aberdeen. It's the first one in England or Scotland. Wow. In 1506, he grants a royal charter to the incorporation of surgeons and barbers of Edinburgh, which later becomes the Royal College of Surgeons. So creepy the way barbers and surgeons are the same thing. He's also suitably fascinated by crazy Renaissance scientific experimenting. Oh, yeah, but this is that is proper learning, isn't it? Mm. Doing all these crazy things. He takes a personal interest in dentistry. So apparently he used oh! to... <laughs> oh, no! He used to pay people to let him practice and remove teeth. Oh, gosh! Oh, how... Oh, you must have been desperate. <laughs> let you practice on their teeth. Mind you, how do dentists learn? Cool, cheap dentistry is just the most <laughs> awful idea. Particularly when they're paying you to do it. Yeah. when you really know yeah, this. Yeah. Why did he want to be a dentist? Hang on, I can't believe what I just said. James IV... Yes. His hobby was being a dentist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Okay. That's one. That's one to remember. I'll just write that down. <laughs> James Fourth Dentist. Done. Fourteen ninety three. He sets up, uh, or he at least sponsors, a language deprivation study. Sent two children um, to the island of Inchkeith with a mute woman, and the, uh, to bring them up. So they wanted to see whether language was learned or innate. But this is I can't. This is quite a. I thought a modern idea. Look, do you remember the Simpsons episode where the uh, crazy psychotherapist goes, "I've got to no." The thing is, I just need the money. I've already built the tube, and he just needs money to put the children in it. I'm sure that experiment's been done since, but that I didn't realise it was as old as this. Hmm. That's amazing. So they're thinking, happened? you know, maybe it will speak. They'll speak the language of the gods or yeah, Hebrew. Always. <laughs> like yeah, yeah, exactly. They'll go back to the language of Garden of Eden. Sadly, I don't think they were uh, recorded any. Result. Yeah. Mm. Probably didn't end well. <laughs> Just forgot about it when they started yeah. going to war. But James's particular favourite was a Frenchman called John Damien. Oh, right. Here he we was go. Uh, given an alchemy workshop at Stirling Castle. Yeah. But James's particular, the particular favourite is that James encouraged him in his experiments to fly. Great. So he made himself some wings covered in feathers and leapt from the walls of Stirling Castle. How <laughs> did it go? He broke his leg when he fell into a dung heap. Oh. He claimed that he should have used eagle's feathers, but he'd had to f- use chickens, which, being a flightless <laughs> bird, were attracted to the ground. <laughs> There's a problem, look. De- oh, gosh. Too comedy. And unsurprisingly, William Dunbar mercilessly satirises him in one of his poems. And hence the first use of those <laughs> words. And James is just incredibly uh, popular and capable. As we said, he's a Renaissance prince. He's got his hunting, his hawking, his jousting. He's handsome. He's got lots of energy. He's physically strong. He seems to have been quite good at the old jousting. Um, his father is very awkward, but James is charismatic and charming. According to Ayala, he speaks uh, Latin, French, German, Flemish, Italian, Spanish, and, as we said, Gaelic. 
Yeah, I mean, he's he's the perfect king. Unlike his father, who suffers two major rebellions, James is very popular with the nobles, so there are no coups or even threats of coups mm. during his reign. But he's also popular with the ordinary people of Scotland. Um, he, as I said, he used to do tours of the country. He's very outgoing, so he'd speak to people. Delighted in ostentatious displays of generosity, so apparently he sort of paid lots and lots of money to a child that brought him an apple at Dumbarton. <laughs> Um, and this all establishes sort of a w- reservoir of affection, so that when he does have slightly dodgier policies, like with the financial yeah. things going on, yeah. people don't mind because they quite like him. They go, oh, Jimmy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that sounds perfect. It does sound perfect. Have you got any negatives? I do a little bit. All right. He is actually not so dissimilar to his father in some ways. He is a bit arbitrary in the way that he rules. So in church appointments, he abuses the um, 1487 indult that James achieved to be able to make his own appointments. So the Pope had said, you can appoint whoever you want, advise me, and then I'll appoint who you say. Mm -hmm. James takes full advantage and just appoints basically his supporters or indeed illegitimate children. It's to be expected though, isn't it? It's maybe not so good for the church because you get people who aren't really suitable or capable in the job. With financial stuff, as I said, he's got all these acts of revocation that he keeps on doing, some of which means that he can basically just be a law unto himself. There's um, One historian said it was like a second-term government offering a blank cheque rather than a manifesto. Mm-hmm. Um, and like his father, he gains money through remissions for serious crimes. So basically somebody commits murder, and he says, well, if you pay me, then I'll let you off. Yeah. Which um, is something James III got a lot of criticism for. James IV does it as well. Oh, Right. Oh, yeah, we touched on that. Mm. Um, but again, people just are all right with it. Because they like James IV. Yeah. That's the difference. Um, at the end of his reign, he was actually running up an annual deficit of about £7,000, what with all his shipbuilding. Yeah, that's all right. Now, apparently the French alliance may have remedied this. So if he'd been king for longer, then he would have got loads and loads of money from the French, and that yeah. might have seen this. But pa- perhaps if he lived longer, he might have run into trouble financially. He might not have been able to sustain his lifestyle. Is this why they sold off his ship really cheaply? Yeah, right. because they didn't have any purpose for them and it cost a lot of money to maintain them. Mm. So maybe if he'd lived for another 20 years, actually, he might have had some difficulties. It was almost a bit like Henry VIII, you know, just spent and spent Henry VII's money. Yeah. But then when you run out of money, what do you do? Yeah. You can't downsize very easily. <laughs> exactly. Um, and Parliament, interestingly, suffers somewhat under James. It become custom for pretty much annual meetings, and this is how government in Scotland is run. Mm. Now, in 1488-95, in James's minority, Parliament meets nine times. Mm. So in seven years, nine Parliaments. So oh, that's very good. 1496-1513, in his majority, it meets four times. Ah. And generally only to deal with war taxes. Yeah. Now, in fairness to James... His experience of parliaments under James III was basically around rebellions, coups, or indeed regicide. So it's not perhaps the most stable form of government. And what James does instead is that he has much more flexible general councils. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like he's got everything under control. And he meets with his nobles and courtiers in person, plays cards and dice with them. So everyone's kind of okay with it. It's not like Charles I. Yeah, but it's very active management, isn't it? Mm. He's he's there day to day talking to everyone, getting everything sorted out, rather than doing absolutely nothing Mm. and having an occasional uh, parliament just to raise money. Perhaps the biggest argument for subjectivity against James is technically you could say this is what happens after he dies, but it's maybe a consequence of him dying, that if this reign is the golden age, then Flodden brings it to a very abrupt end. 
Yep. Because so many of the nobles are killed. It's sort of almost like the First World War in terms of wiping out a generation. Everybody that's left is either quite old or quite young. Mm. Mm. And um, it's ironic that because he's so popular, everybody's there. Everybody oh, wants to yeah. fight for him. So like, even the head gardener at Stirling Castle came a cropper <laughs> at the Battle of Flodden. Oh, God. So it even leaves the garden in weeds. So all of this amazing stuff, this united and capable nobility, the glittering, all this stuff he's built up. Comes on show in England and mm. it's mown down. Flodden kind of takes it out. I think, though, that that is a battliness problem. Mm. It the, definitely is. <laughs> yeah. that, Guys... What we have here is a problem with battling. <laughs> you there, you there. Oh, no, head off, right. You there, over there. Um, it's fantastic. He has got kinging down to a fine art. I said right at the start, he makes it seem very easy. It, I mean, I don't even know where to start without just completely going over everything you just said. But oh, there's so many firsts there. And then dentistry. <laughs> the dentistry. So... I, again, I need to ask who was the best in, in subjectivity, because I can't... Uh, it, it really does seem like such a golden period for... The best God. we've had thus far was David I, which is going back quite a while. So he was associated with what was known as the sort of Davidian reforms, uh, revolution. Really, really stuff. dry stuff, but laid mm. foundations for later things. Yeah. This is much more stuff to get your teeth in, though. Mm. Really great. And I mean, it's fun as well, isn't it? Yeah. And let's get to the core of it. Would you like to be a subject in this time? Mm. Oh, yes. I would... I'm going for a ten. Ooh! I'm going for a ten because I can't see how this will be beaten. I think we need to have a good scale on mm. these things. There's got to be a best and a worst. Everyone loves him. It's a happy time. Mm. All stuff's going on. You get, you get paid to go to his dentist surgery. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> brilliant. I am going to mark him down for the floddeniness. Because I think that in terms of the subjectivity, I mean, obviously you wouldn't want to be at Flodden, mm. but in terms of subjectivity, you'd want that to last longer. Yeah. You don't want it all to stop when he's just 40. Mm. And it's, we've had, sadly, for, in so many ways, he's so much better than all these Jameses we've had yeah. before. And yet, it's another James who became king with a minority, lots and lots of promise, dies young and violently, right when it seems like everything's going fine and then we've got to go again. Leaving chaos, yeah. If he could have had another 10, 15, maybe 20 years, died in his bed and just continued this, then that would have been the perfect reign. I think the fact that Flodden happens and everyone gets wiped out and it's such a huge disaster, I think does impact on your experience as a Scot. I still think it's great and I still think he's doing so many really good things. I think... It's one of those, it's funny because it's, it's good in a way that he can get away with doing some slightly <laughs> yeah. dodgy stuff by being popular because actually that's effective kingship. Yeah. It is Charles II, isn't it? Yeah. It's just definitely... using his personality as his major mm. weapon for diplomacy. Really. But I still think it's great and I still think it deserves a very high score. I'm, I'm deciding between an eight and a half and a nine. nine. I'm going to give him a nine. Yeah! It's the fact that you've got sort of the best bit of the medieval stuff he's picked out chivalry and thought chivalry, court, jousting pageantry, yeah. that's all brilliant but <laughs> let's also have art and culture and yeah, but he's sort of got this hybrid monarchy where 
He's got that, but he's also looking way forward to the Enlightenment, <laughs> to doing these experiments and stuff. And it's just it's just best of both worlds. So it it's feels great. like a cross between Edward III, Henry VIII, and Charles II. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Charles II certainly with his founding of all like the um, royal. Was it him that did the Royal Society? Yeah, 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 all that sort of stuff. Oh yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy with so that. That's a score. 19 for subjectivity. Mm. Best we've had. Longevity. Well, not as long as it could have been, no. sadly. He's king from the 11th of June 1488 to the 9th of September 1513. So that's 25.25 years, mm. which when we put that into the ediometer, gives him a score of 13.5. It's none too shabby. Dynasty. Not the program. He has two surviving children. One of whom actually was born after Flodden. Oh dear. But I think we can give yeah, him the credit yeah. for that one. Surviving. Um, there were also two short-lived sons and two stillborn daughters. So he had a number of mm. pregnancies with Margaret, but sadly only two surviving uh, children. Um, we double that in Scotland, so that gives him a score of four out of 20. That one's led him down a little Ooh, bit. Oh, it really has. That's quite something. How's that? But nevertheless, he has still got a whopping score of 66 that's very good, isn't it? That's very, very good. That puts him in third place. Third? We had Robert the Bruce, who had 70. She can understand mm. Robert the Bruce getting a high yeah. score. And uh, Malcolm the Third. Malcolm had um, the top score for children. It's really, I mean, it's the dynasty that's let James down. If James had had, well, if so if he'd had... One more child. Um, well, even just those, so he had four that died. I mean, up to 12, he'd then have had 72. That would be the best score. But... He may have a high score, but he's still got one more hurdle to jump. Yeah. Does he have that certain something, that lasting legacy, that great achievement, that star quality that we call... Rex Factor! Can we go through just quickly what you outlined there? Does he have that certain something? Mm -hmm. Yes. Does he have that star quality? Mm -hmm. Yes. Does he have that lasting legacy? Possibly not. I mean, I suppose the, sort of the Renaissance court Ooh, doesn't yeah, die out for stuff. James, and there's a lot of things in there which obviously are continue, the firsts that don't just yeah. finish. What was that other, what's the last thing you say there in that list? Great achievement. Boat. Boat, big boat. <laughs> Biggest boat. <laughs> um, I mean, if we're being strict, he doesn't necessarily tick all those boxes, but I feel like the most important one there is that certain something. Mm. And he definitely has that. If if Charles II has the Rex Factor, so does this man. You know, when you put him up against Robert the Bruce, you say, well, maybe he doesn't... You know, Robert the Bruce has got Bannockburn, which is Scotland's mm. greatest victory. James IV has got Flodden, which is one of their worst defeats. Mm. Bruce has got the Declaration of our Bruce, which is this yeah. you know, great... So maybe Robert the Bruce has got a few more sort of solid things that he has there. But James has got a really great reign, a great personality, a great court and... Mm. period, the renaissance, all this stuff going on. It's really, really good. It's the subjectivity bit. It, I think that, yes, there's those major milestones for Robert the Bruce, but it's the day-to-day -day mm. reign of this guy. It just seems to be a great great spirit. There's a great, it's a great time. Mm. And because we're stopping with James VI, we're not going all the way up to the, medi the modern period with the Scottish series... I think you probably can actually say this is probably the best period to be a subject. This is yeah. the best reign, probably, yeah. that you would actually want. The advances that would make it more pleasant aren't significant enough before mm. we end the series yeah. 
to make them outweigh this lovely time. Mm. So if that isn't cause for the Rex factor... Many historians also have suggested that he's... This is arguably the best reign in Scottish history. He's up there, certainly, in terms of the best monarchs. It's got to be a yes for it's me got as well. To be a yes. Well I mean, done, James the Fourth. You have stormed your way. Do you know why I like that? It's because he's just got the Rex factor for being just a really good king. Mm. He started the reign, as I said, he made it look easy, and he just carried on being extremely competent until he got everyone killed. That's the one, <laughs> the one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Let us know what you think, whether you agree or disagree. Um, follow us on Twitter at RexFactorPod, like us on Facebook, email us rexfactorpodcast.hotmail.com and go to rexfactor.wordpress.com to read the blogs and complete the polls to say whether or not you agree. Yeah, that's going way back to uh, Alfred the Great. Exactly. All of them. It's just a simple yes, no, or maybe. If you would like to support the podcast, um, it'd be lovely if you could leave a uh, positive review on iTunes <laughs> yeah. and subscribe. Um Tell your friends about this show. Spread the word. If you'd like to donate money to the podcast, it is a free podcast, of course, but if you would like to donate, you can do a one-off donation via PayPal, or you can do a monthly subscription on uh, Be My Patron links on our website with crowdfunding. And again, you get rewards depending on your level, um, ranging from a mention on the podcast, listening and accessing our Privy Chamber special uh, bonus recordings we do after every one of these. Need a tea first. Accessing the special episodes, which usually cost $2 a time. A mug, commissioning a blog, and commissioning a special episode on the subject of your choice. And a t-shirt, which we're getting sorted. Uh, now we've got some new Privy Councillors to welcome today. Hey, great. Chris Dausch, DC Brown, B. Jones, H.J. Tufts, Frio Dockers, Sandy Rattray, Catherine Calcutta, which is a fantastic name. I think Sandy Rattray is pretty good. <laughs> Laurie, I mean, they're all fantastic. <laughs> Laurie Carver... G. Pobst, Woodstein 52, D. Cartwright, Natalie Crown, Sean Colbeth, Amy Warrod, and a very happy birthday to Rebecca McNitt. Way happy birthday to you. Have birth- uh, what a lovely clutch of uh, Privy Councillors. Thank you very much. And as we said at the start of the episode, it would be really lovely if you're listening to this in August 2017. Please, please do check out our Rex Factor the Animated Show Kickstarter if you can pledge to that and get some lovely rewards or tell your friends tell your family um if we can get the money by the end of the month then we will have a really exciting uh, future to look forward to and we're gonna have an animated on-screen rex factor this is just it's huge (laughs) it's gonna be great now we've got some messages to finish off with yeah some pronunciation help for me okay miles peterson at miles peterson three on twitter said that um hector boyce as it should be rhymes with voice Hope what were helps. we saying? I was saying, I was really strong. I was like, Boiki, Boica, Boosa. I wasn't oh, really right. sure. But Hector Boyce, apparently. Boyce. How is it spelled? It's spelled B-O-E-C-E. B-O-E-C-E. Oh, that is tricky. Mm. And uh, on Twitter, at SciencePie said that, and this, again, I've pronounced these correctly because of these uh, interventions. Socky, as in Socky, no, Socky, as in Socky Burn, is pronounced Socky. And Loch Maben is pronounced <laughs> Lockmaven. <laughs> yeah, this really to, works on paper, have, yeah. doesn't it? Lockmaven, I probably pronounced yeah. it before. And Sochiburn, I probably said. So it's Sockyburn and Lockmaven. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Karen Feegan, at KC Feegan on Twitter, says, I've just listened to the James Third episode, and I never get tired of Ali being amazed that James Bond was in Line of Winter. I think that's three times now. Which Bond? Timothy Dalton. 
Oh my god. I need, I do need to watch that. Nick Lord Lancaster on WordPress, another great name, has emailed about, uh, message about the heritage playing cards. Oh yeah. Hi guys, recently discovered the podcast via your radio interview. Ah, wow. I'm currently listening to English and Scottish concurrently, so I've just heard back to back Edward III and Robert the Bruce, and I feel this must be a high point in British history. <laughs> yeah, true. Just wanted to praise you for your use of the heritage playing cards. My four-year-old daughter Lily has these and absolutely loves them. She plays with them as if they were dolls and is particularly fond of monarchs who ascended to the throne as children. She has given some of them nicknames. Some are snappier than others. <laughs> So, now you <laughs> might want to get out, if you get out okay. the uh, cards. Yeah, we've got the English ones here. Yeah. So, if you can find for me Edward the Elder. Yes, okay, got him. The Biggles looking chap. Yes, Biggles looking chap, very good. Henry the Third. you don't need to see this one. That 1216 to 1272 fellow. What, I mean, what a useful nickname. <laughs> yeah. Imagine calling tortoises, you know, they are uh, <laughs> carapace clad <laughs> reptiles. Fellow. <laughs> Margaret the Maid of Norway, Maidy Lady. <laughs> Robert the Bruce. Yeah. The Dancing Robot. Very good. Very good. I love how children interpret things like that. I just saw fierce, terrifying man, <laughs> Dancing Robot. So, like a child, um, a friend of mine, his. Uh, nephew described Coca-Cola as other drinks are available mm -hmm. as uh, brown spiky juice <laughs> which it totally is and some message from some of our privy councillors okay Jackie Reuter listening to James the first of Scots only in Rex Factor would you hear the downside is that he was faithful to his wife <laughs> had to pause for laughing at that point uh, yeah see those sort of things slip by don't mm. they and Felix McBarnes I've always had a soft spot for Henry VII as an underdog story. I was wondering which monarch you both thought had the best rise to power or underdog story. Charles II. But that point where he's up a tree. Yeah, it's not looking good at that point, certainly. Yeah. I mean, you you, uh, you seem to have uh, held this against him because he got his feet wet, but Alfred the Great, when he's stuck in a swamp, oh. and he then arrives from the swamp and defeats the Vikings in battle. <laughs> okay, that's true. That is a good comeback. I will give you that. I I hate myself for even considering this. Dunstan. Mm. Quite humble beginnings. Mm. And he stuck around like a bad smell, didn't he? Yeah. Mm. I take it back. I take it back immediately. <laughs> take it back immediately. That's a good question. I think Henry VII is a very good... It might be a hard example to top, because everybody mm. else really, even though they had hardship or difficulties, they nevertheless came from the position of being... Yeah. The son of somebody incredibly powerful. Oh, okay, okay. The Penguin. William III. I mean, he was, again, the mm. son of someone incredibly powerful, but it was really kept down. Yeah. And from the point of being a total pawn to taking on uh, Louis to becoming King of England and being mm. an equal... Really good. That's a good example. Uh, but that is it for us with mm. uh, James the Fourth. I think our next recording will be a special episode on uh, the Vikings in Ireland. <whistles> Should be quite fun. Um, yes. Kickstarter, as we said, August 2017. If you're still listening, then please do uh, get involved with that. Uh, but until then, James the Fifth will be our next Scottish episode. We'll see if we can uh, get another X Factor winner. See you next time. Cheerio!